Deep pattern downfield, touchdown Miami. What a throw, Devontae Parker. Holy smokes, what a drive. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we are back at the Draft Preview, talking to the Draft Network's Trevor Sikama, breaking down all things off-ball linebackers. We're going to get to the top of the class, who fits the Dolphins' traits and prototypes, and much, much more with Trevor. Plus, we're going to break down the latest Dolphins signing in veteran offensive lineman. He's played tackle, he's played guard, in DJ Fluker. We'll break down DJ's game from the tape, from the stats, the PFF data, pressures allowed, where he's played, how many games he's played, what he means to the offensive line, how he fits in, how things could shuffle on the O-line, all of that and a whole bunch more on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And we do have some veteran beef joining the offensive line. The Dolphins announced the signing of tackle-slash-guard DJ Fluker on Tuesday morning, giving the team another plus 340-pound offensive lineman. DJ was listed at 342 pounds last season. Solomon Kinley checks in just below 340 at 339, with Eric Flower still maintaining the title of heaviest offensive lineman, heaviest player on the team at 343 pounds. So that gives you three players that weigh... Right in that 340-pound range, no other offensive line in the NFL can say that. And DJ does have some positional flexibility. He was the Ravens' right tackle from Week 8 onward last season after Ronnie Stanley went down and they flipped Orlando Brown over to left tackle, and he played well there in a pinch. It took him a couple of games to get his feet under him after not playing a whole lot in the early portions of the season, coming off a strange offseason, especially for a big fellow like DJ. And after a rough night in that Week 10 Baltimore game with six pressures allowed, and that was the game with the snap issues for Matt Skura and all that torrential downpour, so a really strange game. But after that, he never allowed more than three pressures in a single game. He never allowed another sack and allowed just one hit the rest of the way. That's no sacks, one hit, and 17 pressures on 175 pass-blocking snaps over nine games. And if you include the two playoff games where he allowed four hurries and nothing else, for the Ravens. But, and this is why I mentioned the guards, DJ played guard for the Seahawks in 2018 and 2019. He started 23 games over a two-year span there at the position for the Seahawks, allowing just 30 pressures on 918 pass-blocking snaps. That's a pressure every 30.6 snaps and less than one per game as he averaged just a smidge under 40 pass-blocking snaps per game. And I say that meaning like 39.94 snaps or up snaps per game for Fluker. He made the same change with the Chargers after being the 11th pick in the 2013 draft. He started 31 games in two years at right tackle, then started 28 games the next two seasons at right guard for the Chargers. Then he spent a year with the Giants playing a little bit of both. So he fits the mold, big body, position versatile. And I happen to think you kind of mask some of the warts that had him bounce around a little bit, not just from team to team, but from position to position. I think those are kind of masked on tape when he's inside. He's a big, big dude, so he can get out over his skis at times, but you anchor him inside and don't worry about speed rushers or possible devastating counter moves of those world-class edge rushers off the outside, and he's pretty damn good inside. 
I think he's serviceable outside and can excel inside. Another massive, massive human being inside to help protect the interior and that pocket inside for Tua. He gets tremendous push in the running game as well. A big boon to your running game. Just go look at his name on Twitter and click the video links. There are pancakes galore. There are choke slams. One rep, I want to say it was against Khalil Mack back with the Raiders when Fluker was with the Chargers. They need to put Jerry Lawler's voice over that clip. He just he just chokeslams the guy to the ground after a good pass block rep. He chips guys who are engaged and sends them to the moon. And best of all, I put this in my Twitter thread on Tuesday morning. There's a video of him reach blocking and Dominican Sue against the Rams. And that's hard enough to do as a reach block. You have to get outside of a player who has you out aligned pre-snap. But to completely turn him inside out and then bury him, that is is a fun watch. He fits the mold from a size, sheer density standpoint, power and versatility standpoint. He is, however, the first offensive player on the roster over the age of 30. He joins John Jenkins as the lone 30 club. I'll be sure to find my way to their lockers for the first time we got access to the locker room this year so I can join the old man's club, the 30 and over crew with those guys. He's played 6,737 career snaps, 3,900 of those at right guard, 2,527 at right tackle, 306 at left tackle, and three as the extra offensive lineman. So he's never played left guard, never played center. He's played 108 games and started 96 of them. To me, this gives you so much flexibility. It's the perfect supplement to the young offensive line we've got. You see Panay Sewell, Rashawn Slater, maybe even some of the guys at 18 or 36 on the draft board as possible O-line options for Miami. But I think this takes away any potential need you might have considered. It gives you more flexibility. Of course, you can still draft offensive linemen, but you don't really need it as badly as you did before the Fluker signing. This gives you a backup plan at literally all three spots the rookies played, right? Jackson left tackle, Hunt right tackle, Kinley right guard. If any of them struggles in year two, you've got the experienced Fluker waiting in the wings to pick up the performance. Or maybe you decide they're all progressing well and you flip Kinley over to left guard where he played in college and even a little bit there last year as well when Flowers was banged up. And I think some of his best tape for Kinley was at left guard. Maybe that's the route. Fluker and Hunt are on the same side of the offensive line in this, in this you know, potential scenario, and that's just a hair under 700 pounds. That's one trip to the public's bakery away from 700 pounds and two absolute steamrollers in the run-blocking game. This gives Miami three Alabama players. That's the most in the NFL, and it gives them a joker in the highest form. ACL, we got a deal. Go Hawks! <laughs> that was a great video where he and Tyler Lockett of the Seahawks made fun of the Russell Wilson extension video when he was in bed and said, Seattle, we've got a deal. Funny, funny stuff there. A funny guy. So there you have it. An acquisition in the final 10 days of draft countdown. We needed it. I needed some pro tape to look at. Love the way Fluker tightens gaps, throws those heavy hands. Love the way he walls off as a seal blocker on the backside and the constant push he gets in the ground game. And you don't get signed by the Baltimore Ravens where he spent last season and not have skills in the running game. So DJ Fluker, your newest Miami Dolphin. Let's get to my interview with the Draft Network's Trevor Sikama and break down this rookie class that Fluker could be blocking next season at off-ball linebacker. And joining us now on the Drive Time Podcast is senior NFL writer for the Draft Network. He's the co-host of the hilarious and informative Locked On NFL Draft Podcast with Benjamin Solak. He is Trevor Sikama. And Trey, you know, I brought you on the podcast here and I had a joke for my intro about how I'm wearing the hat because I can't compete with the quaff, but you're wearing uh, the hat too, man. What's going on here? <laughs> man, it's it's... We are in the thick of it right now in draft season. And look, I, I barely got enough time to, 
brush my teeth and get breakfast in the morning. So I don't have time to do my hair up every day because it's getting a little long now. So it's a little, it's turned into a little bit of work, but I appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, the shout out there. Nonetheless, my joke was going to be that I, I almost always say I'm wearing a hat for the same reason you just did. I don't have time to run a comb through it, <laughs> through the old mop. But the truth was, I just didn't want to compete today because it's the afternoon. We're, we're rolling here late in the afternoon, but that's neither here nor there. You know, I do want to catch up with you here because I saw a great tweet from uh, Alyssa talking about you going out to a track recently. Yes. And I recently promoted the hell out of the F1 show on the podcast here in my uh, recommendation station portion of the podcast. I can't get enough of it. And now all I want to do is go out there and try to act like I know how to drive. That had to have been a blast, man. Yeah. So uh, my wonderful girlfriend, Alyssa, uh, she got me for my birthday, my 30th birthday, a five minute session (laughs) in a NASCAR stock car at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I, I had no idea what it was going to be. I didn't know if like I was, there was going to be somebody else in the car with me. Like, you know, if there was going to be like a two steering wheel thing. Cause I'm thinking in my head, like there's no way that they just send me out there in a stock car. And you know, there's governors on the engine and everything. So you can't go the full <laughs> speed, but they were letting me get up to like 130, 140 miles an hour. I think my top speed was actually only like 125, 130 or something like that. But uh, dude, it was, it was a blast. I mean, once you get into gear, you are ripping it around the track and, it was cool. It was called the Richard Petty driving experience. If anybody's near Charlotte or if anybody has anything like that by a, a track that's near them, I guarantee it will be a once in a lifetime thing and you'll absolutely love it. So that was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to the Grand Prix, the Miami Grand Prix coming our way soon to the Formula One Cup Series should be amazing. And I was curious as you were doing that, like, you know, in this business, all we think about is football. We think about how to promote our own our own work and to talk about certain or create segments in everything we do in everyday life. Right. So I was wondering, did you come up with anything on that drive? Like who might be the best uh, race car driver in this class or maybe this car corners or transitions like player X? Were you going through any of that? I don't know. Jalen Waddle might be the only guy yeah. who already has a good acclimation to, to those kinds of speeds, him and maybe Eric Stokes. I don't know. So maybe it's less of a learning curve for those guys because they're at high speeds when they're on foot and it won't be uh, too different when they put some wheels underneath them. Well, we're going to talk about a position today on the podcast that would involve more with the car crash element, the part that you and I probably would be involved <laughs> in if we were to get on the track against actual racers and talk about some off-ball linebackers. And I think the Dolphins are a, a great team to go position by position with because there's so much there's so much of that Venn diagram in the middle, right? Where there's so much crossover because everybody on this damn defense cross trains and plays multiple spots. But sure. in your job at the draft network, where you guys are the 33rd team, right? When you look at an off ball linebacker, what are the modern day traits you look for that not team specific, but just in general that you want in those players? Well, I think the, the number one, it's coverage. It's coverage ability. When you talk about the linebackers that you would want to select in the top 50 they have to have some sort of a coverage profile too many defenses nowadays are playing in sub package the majority of the defense. And I wouldn't go as far to say as, Hey, like nickel is the new base. No, I mean, it's called base for a reason. That's still, you know, you've got to be able to execute up front with, with more bodies in the box. And so like you, you've got to be able to stop things from a base perspective, but as we're seeing teams get more and more comfortable spreading their offenses out early, you've got to be able to have linebackers on the field who can cover because you're going to be in those situations a lot. So if you don't have a coverage profile, that automatically really takes you out of first-round consideration. 
given top 50 consideration, but just because there's going to be a chance that some guys are, are in there. Of course, what goes into coverage is intelligence, anticipation, and athleticism. Those are probably the best traits because, you know, I think that we're getting a little overboard when we say, oh, linebackers are the running backs of defense. You know, you, you could, they're a dime a dozen. You can get one every single year. I don't totally agree with that, but I understand what people are saying from like a tackling perspective or like a run stuffing perspective, because if you grow up playing linebacker, that's just what you do. You should be able to do that. It's not like you can't have a linebacker at this point in time that you're talking about, especially for the NFL draft that you go like, Oh, he struggles with tackling. Well, if he struggles with tackling, then that's a, <laughs> you know, that's a major issue. If you're playing a position that the main thing is tackling is so that's already a baseline. You should already be able to have that for a linebacker. And there's a couple of other traits as well, but I would tell you the ones that make the difference intelligence, anticipation, and athleticism. Those are the things that give you the coverage profile to be able to play on all three downs in the NFL. Yeah, I've got a few questions for you based upon that response, which was great, by the way. And, you know, you mentioned that the linebackers are the modern-day running backs, but I I wrote down in my notes here, not here they're not, because, you know, the the defensive secondary definitely drives this Dolphins defense. We utilize uh, six defensive backs or more at the seventh highest rate in the National Football League. Lots of dime, plenty of nickel, like you mentioned. But, you know, they also operate with so many different linebacker looks because there are so many 2-3, 2-4, 3-3 looks in this defense that that fluctuates guys in and out based on down and distance. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that there is still a base defense, but the Dolphins, I've had a hard time explaining this to fans. There really isn't that base defense because of how play-by-play and how week-by-week this defense can be. But when you consider that Miami went out and got a Bernardrick McKinney, they've got Jerome Baker, who does check that that coverage box you mentioned, but also is a hell of a blitzer. How much can having just elite-level blitzing to your game kind of offset that coverage ability you're talking about there? No, sure. And I guess you can also get into a mold where if you want to continue to put them on the same trajectory or outlook as running backs— Running backs are often by committee now, and that's normally because they have a specialization to them, right? I mean, like, you'll get a guy who's just got some great soft hands who really knows how to run his routes. He's great on third down. He's a benefit to the passing game. You also have your running backs that are more bulked up. They're great in short yardage situations. They can convert for you on third or fourth down as well as in the red zone. And then you have some guys that you'd love to get in open space. If you're running more uh, outside zone stuff, get them out towards the line, uh, towards the sideline, excuse me. And they might be able to break something open for you. Maybe a home run of of 40, 50, 60 yards, whatever it is. And so you have those specializations. And I think that that brings you value. Now, of course, there's normally only one running back on the field. And even if they don't get the ball on a certain play, it's not like a big detriment to the offense. Whereas linebacker, it's a little bit different because they're in the center of the defense, right? And if you don't do your job on a certain play, that's, you know, a, a big detriment to what the defense is doing overall. But going back to your point of like how advantageous it is to have a great blitzer. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think that when you look at a team like the Dolphins that continues to throw different bodies out there to try to, truly just take strengths and make those strengths, whatever they're doing out there on the football field, when their number is called, I suppose that there are certain alleys or lanes or roles or responsibilities that you could have for a variety of different guys. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's certainly a knack to being able to blitz, whether it's off the edge or through the middle. I think that navigating chaos is is such an underrated trait for a lot of running backs, being able to stay clean in areas where there's a lot of bodies flying around you. For example, like I know we'll get into the prospects here in a second, but like Nick Bolton, I feel like does that really, really well. You know, he's just a slasher type of linebacker who comes from the middle. And it just seems like he's going through the A or the B gap whenever the offensive line's moving left or right. And he really knows how to anticipate and squeeze through those offensive line holes to get into the backfield. And it's like, 
that definitely that like that has a place. Nick Bolden's not the best coverage linebacker to to kind of like bring it full circle. And that's why I'm not so sure that he's going to get drafted in the first round, even though he's a really fun prospect, but there's a role to what he can do for you. And I think that to your point, that kind of emphasizes in what you can do when you're attacking the line of scrimmage. To me, you just described Bernardrick McKinney's game. I mean, he was a second-round draft pick a few years ago, number 41 overall, I think it was, and watching him on tape. Yeah, he's anticipating, you know, he's getting his keys, whether it's a pulling guard or a fullback coming across the formation or split zone, whatever it might be, and he sees that thing and he pulls that trigger and he combines that with, you know, the 260-pound physicality he brings. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it just speaks to the different roles this Dolphins linebacker group fills. I mean, Alandon Roberts came back, and to me, maybe that means McKinney can get more edge snaps because Roberts is one of the better B-gap to B-gap bangers in the National Football League when it comes to early rundowns. And then, you know, Andrew Van Ginkle, what what can he do? Multiple things. Yeah. And Jerome Baker and, and Vince Beagle played some, some four-down even fronts, but also plays off-ball linebacker, so... Now that we've kind of established that base here and talking about what this Dolphins team has at the position group, and you got into Nick Bolton there a little bit, I want to go through your tiers of off-ball linebackers and start obviously with the first one. Are there any first-round linebackers in this group, and where does that kind of that kind of uh, drop-off come in terms of these are the top guys, and then there's a little bit of a gap between the next tier of guys? Yeah, so I have one guy in tier one. Uh, there is clearly one linebacker who is head and shoulders above the rest. And I would tell you that that's Micah Parsons from Penn state. I mean, what he brings from an athletic profile, uh, an edge rushing background, how comfortable he is rushing off the edge. Also certainly blitzing between the A and the B gaps as well. What impressed me the most about Micah Parsons isn't just his athleticism. It was watching the progressions of his game. I watched his early tape and I would encourage everybody who, whether you're just getting into watching tape or you've been watching it for a couple of cycles in the draft, I would always tell you, if you can watch tape of them in the early parts of the season, watch them in the middle parts of the season, and then watch them at the end and watch them in order, because I think that allows you to really see how much a player progressed. And I think that was exactly the case with Micah Parsons. This was a guy who came to Penn state as an edge rusher transitions over to a linebacker spot. And they didn't exactly know where to play him. They were kind of playing him as an outside linebacker for a while as he was dealing with that hybrid role, but then they felt very comfortable playing him in the middle of that defense. And that's where he played this year. He was new to it, you know? And so when you watch his tape and if you're bouncing around, different places like if you watch the 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 end of season games and then you pop back over to the the early season stuff you're gonna be like oh you know well now I'm kind of mixed on him because I've seen you know mixed uh results from what he's going for but if you watch them in order you'll see that instead this seemed like a player who just continued to progress as the year went on the more snaps he got at middle linebacker the better he was I mean if you go watch that that cotton bowl that Penn State played against Memphis in in 2019 that is one of the most takeover dominant performances that I've seen of any player in this draft class. That is one of the single game tapes that I've seen of any linebacker. So he is in tier one. He's kind of by himself there as as the top guy to get. Yep. And before you go on to the next tier here, I do want to ask you about Parsons and and go more in depth on this because you know, Trevor, I think that one of the things that happens, and you probably agree, you see this all the time with any position group, is that a player is a certain caliber once the season comes to a close. And Parsons didn't even play this year, so he's not even part of you know the 2020 production and then the, the 2021 draft season that kind of where he goes through the ringer. But is it one of these instances where this guy's just been so good for so long and we haven't had negative things to say about him that we get to the draft process and now all of a sudden he has to be like torn down? Because 
to me, he was a, if not the second or third best prospect in the entire draft class, like a top five pick solidified at the end of the season. But now here we get here, maybe the position plays a part of that. But I've also seen there's reports about the character and stuff like that that just suggest that maybe he doesn't go top 10. Like, what do you think the reason is for Micah Parsons' stock to not be in that top five, or maybe it was four or five months ago? Yeah, and you know, I think the biggest thing with it is you, you start hearing these whispered anonymous reports about character or how, how committed he is or work ethic. And look, I, I can't speak to that. I've never sat down with him myself. I've never met him. I don't have the, the, the ability, the resources to go through these extensive background checks. And so I really do think that that's just why that you've seen him fall because he's a top 10 player for me in terms of talent. I have him top 10 in this draft class. Cause I think that he is that good. Now him being a linebacker, I think that gives people an excuse to go, Oh, okay. We've heard whispers off the field. And also he's a linebacker. So I'm just going to drop him on mock drafts that I do, or we're just going to put him a little bit lower, but at the end of the day, yeah, he's one of the best defensive football players in this class. And I think that uh, once he gets out on the field, I think everybody's going to realize that once again. So you mentioned you've got one player in the first round there, Micah Parsons. I completely agree. Like I said, top 10 pick all day for me. But one of the players that, and you know, last year, Daniel Jeremiah said the exact same thing about Austin Jackson, said that the outsiders might not have this perspective, but the league thinks he's a top 15 pick. He winds up going 18 to Miami. And yeah. I saw the exact same thing with Jamin Davis out of Kentucky. And I've watched this kid's you know tape a little bit, seen Brett Coleman did a great job breaking down his game and kind of got me turned on to him at first. And man, he can flat out, flat out play. He can fly around and you, you saw the workout numbers, obviously. Does he kick yeah. off your second tier? And where do you think that second linebacker comes off the board? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure who's going to be the second linebacker. I mean, I would tell you that if you are classifying Notre Dame's Jeremiah Uusukoromoa as a linebacker, he would yeah. be the next guy that we talk about here. I think the NFL is really going to love him. I mean, he's, he's got that hybrid mold of a big nickel type, safety type, linebacker type. I mean, you don't want him in between the tackles at all times, but it was kind of the same thing with Jeremy Chin, right? I mean, a lot of people who might be familiar with how successful with Jeremy Chin was in his rookie year. He played more deep safety than I think Owusu Koromoa would play, but he also, some of his most impactful plays, probably, honestly, most of his impactful plays came when he was around the linebacker level, whether it was him kind of creeping down or playing as a slot guy or just playing it next to Shaq Thompson in the middle of that Carolina defense. He played more as a pseudo kind of a linebacker player, and I see that similar role with Owusu Koromoa He's just more of a linebacker type with it. He's just bigger and I think a little bit stronger. So what he doesn't give you as well in the back end with Jeremy Chin with that experience, I think that he could give you a little bit more experience playing in the box. So I would tell you that he he would be that second linebacker that I'd bring up. But Jamie Davis from Kentucky, he's a marvel, right? I mean, like you look at his athleticism and they, they just don't they don't make them like Jamie Davis. I mean, 4.3740 yard dash, I believe. He had like a 42, 43-inch vertical. Like he was crazy. And then an 11-foot broad jump. He's a pure athlete. And I think you really see that when you watch it on tape. And unfortunately, I think you see a lot of it in recovery because there are certain times where he's going back in coverage and he doesn't have a ton of experience. And I think that you see that green nature to his play. He'll get beat by a tight end or he'll flow a little bit too far to the left or right. And he'll go, oh, shoot, I'm actually supposed to be over here. Or, oh, this is this is the guy that I should be covering. And you see him putting his foot in the ground and, man, he can recover. He can recover and he can flip his hips and he can start getting deep down the field. I mean, he can cover tight ends very, very well. When we talk about potential linebackers who could be 
tight end neutralizers. And we see this in the NFL. Now the tight end is an absolute offensive chess piece. If you have a really athletic tight end that you can move around, play him in line, play him in the slot, play him in an H back role behind the line of scrimmage, play him as a fullback, whatever it is. A lot of times defenses just don't have the horses to keep up with these guys. Jamie Davis can be a player that you go, Hey, see Travis Kelsey. You just need to guard him or George Kittle or like whoever it's going to be. And those are the cream of the crop, of course. And I think that Davis needs a little bit of work till he gets there, but he gives you that profile. That's why he's so alluring. And so he still needs a little bit of work from true linebacker responsibilities. You know, those tackle these, those between the tackle responsibilities when it comes to, you know, scraping off offensive linemen and making sure you're getting free and making an impact on the ball carrier at the line of scrimmage. He still needs work in that regard, but that's all stuff that you could teach. That's stuff that reps and experience that can really get, get you going. And so he's absolutely somebody who I would think could be in a second tier, third tier. It looks like the NFL really loves him in the second tier. So he could be a, a guy who hears his name pretty early. One of those things where it's same thing with Jeremy Chen, right? The, the whole idea that maybe we don't know where to play him makes him slide. And the Panthers were certainly the beneficiary of that, getting Jeremy Chen in the second round. Now, you talked yeah. about Owusu Kor- Owusa Koromoa. That's easy for me to say. Uh, about him being a guy that maybe his, his secondary position is going backwards. And this might be a question for my Edge podcast. We're going to have one with another one of these great draft experts here coming up about Zayvon Collins. And I'm wondering, yeah. you know, because he, he fits the mold of a two-way type in terms of kind of that Kyle Van Noy role, a guy that can play edge, a guy that can play off-ball, because Van Noy did both of those things, and it varied from year to year based upon those Patriots defenses. And then here in Miami, he was more of an edge. Is he the best kind of two-way convert player? And who else kind of rounds out that group of guys that can play both on the edge with you know two-point stance or maybe even three-point stance, but also come off the football and be a stack linebacker? Yeah, I mean, I think that he would, outside of Parsons, that th- this is the guy that I would think could probably fill that role that you're looking for there. But, man, listen, 6'4", 260, you look at his measurables and you say, okay, this guy is, you know, you could, you could make him in an, an odd front linebacker, almost outside linebacker type, or he'd probably be just like a Sam linebacker in the NFL, a guy who plays much towards the line of scrimmage in a 4-3 defense. This dude's got a feel for coverage, man. He moves super well for 6'4", 260. You that don't, pick six you, he had. <laughs> you don't have to put him on the line of scrimmage. You really don't. You can leave him back, and his feel for coverage is really nice. I talked about intelligence and anticipation. I feel like I saw that quite a bit when I was watching his Tulsa tape. And so this is a player who I'm not really worried about whether it's, you know, like, oh, you know, look at his size. You've got to get him on the line of scrimmage. I really don't think that's the case. If you wanted to even put him at, Mike linebacker like if you wanted to put him in an inside linebacker spot I think that he could grow into that role really really well for you so in my tier two if you will I've got Zayvon Collins along with the Wusu Koromoa Wusu Koromoa is probably going to go a little higher just because I think the NFL really likes him but you know if you threw in Jamin Davis's name there another player who this is a little outside of the question that you originally asked but Baron Browning is a guy that I really like our staff is really high on him over at the draft network and it just seemed like he was another player who He's a former safety hybrid, so he's got a lot of speed that he's bringing to that linebacker spot. And if the NFL, if you could leave him as a will, if you can keep him in space, I think he's going to do a lot of really great things for you. As the year went on, if you watch the early games, progress through the season, and then get to the end of the year, I felt like the light was really coming on for him, especially in coverage and recognition. He was able to call out things in the pre-snap. He could adjust during the play while it was going on and move from one zone or one assignment to the other. I was very encouraged by Baron Browning. He brings great length, great athleticism as well. So that would probably be an encapsulation of those tier two guys that I could see go decently high in the second round. 
We're going to wrap up this draft series preview with a, uh, a, a, a mega episode with Kyle Krabs at the Draft Network because, Trevor, we got to do a Dolphins. I mean, it, it makes t- the most of sense, course. right? So of course. He's going to join us for a, an extravaganza podcast that fans are going to be excited to hear about. But I know that he loves him some Baron Browning, and I kind of started to really fall in love with him at the Senior Bowl when he was working with our linebackers coach, Coach Campanelli, working on stack and shed drills, and he was just getting after it, and Coach was yelling at him, and he was responding. It was fun to watch, even on television. Mm-hmm. So definitely definitely one of those guys that fits the mold. Um, I think I've asked you this kind of already, but can you give me a blitzing linebacker we haven't talked about? Who's someone that really does well to kind of mug up in those A gaps and, and threaten pressure, but also has the ability to kind of bail out and cover? Did we already cover this guy? Have you not talked about him yet? Who might be that player? I'll give a shout out to Cameron McGrone, the inside linebacker from Michigan. I was super high on McGrone coming into this season. In summer scouting, he was one of my favorite defensive players that I watched because I was watching his tape of just a true sophomore. And I said, man, if we get this as a baseline, as a true sophomore, and he takes another step up, we could be talking about a top 50 linebacker here. He didn't necessarily take a big step forward this past season, but it's not like it was a negative. You could just tell that he was still growing. He is somebody who you watch the active feet the second the ball is being snapped his feet are active he's going left or right but sometimes that fails him sometimes it's actually to his detriment because a pulling guard will go one way he'll fly and flow towards that guard and then it, it, the, the play ends up going the different way or he, he goes too far out of what would be his run fit but man outside of those negatives the potential you're getting from him as an inside linebacker as a downhill mike type of linebacker I like what I saw. He's got size. He's got speed. He's got all that stuff. The recognition and anticipation just isn't quite there yet. And so he's a player that I would tell you year two, year three projection has a better outlook to it than year one might be. He might take his lumps in year one in the NFL, but he's a young linebacker prospect. And I really believe that the mold that he is, and I think the mentality that he brings towards playing Mike in the middle and kind of like you said, going towards the line of scrimmage, being in control of those A gaps and B gaps, I like his potential. I really do. I don't know where he's going to get drafted. I don't know how high the NFL is on him, but when it comes to those tier three guys, he's going to be up near the top for me, especially if you need a guy in the middle. I have a feeling Kyle's going to talk about him on the podcast as well. He came down last year uh, for Tua's first start and wound up staying at my apartment for the entire Saturday. And we watched a bunch of college football and just, I have, I've never really watched that much ball with someone that also knows ball very well in terms of one of my buddies in the industry. So that was a lot of fun. And he was going on and on about McGrone, about, uh, I can't even pronounce his last name. Tell me again. Yeah, McGrone. You nailed it. You got it. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. So that was a lot of fun. And like I said, we're going to have Kyle on a future podcast here talking all things Dolphins draft, but he is Trevor Sykema. You said it all, Trevor. NFL writer for the Draft Network, co-host of Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. And uh, I wanted to ask you, man, I know you're up in Charlotte these days, but your team won the Super Bowl, man. How's it feel? <laughs> Surreal. It really does. As somebody who grew up just south of Tampa, I mean, we heard the, the 0-2 team was just legends to me. And I mean, I mean, I was so young when the Bucks won their one Super Bowl. And honestly, if you talk to Bucks fans, it's almost as if they talked like that was the only Super Bowl they were ever going to get. Then all of a sudden, you know, they signed Tom Brady. They get all these other guys to come down and I think it was the manifestation of a lot of the moves that Jason Light, the general manager, has also been able to do over the last couple of years. They clearly got the right head coach in, in, in place. And so it feels surreal. And sometimes it really doesn't even feel real, but it was really awesome to see some incredible media members who who work their butts off in Tampa and often and have not had a great audience to, to, to read their work. They got some national attention. And then 
I've gotten to know a lot of Bucks fans over the years, so it was very fun to see them be very joyous on the Super Bowl Sunday. One day it's going to happen for me, and I don't know how that press box reaction is going to happen because there's rules in the press box, right? I'm going to break them all. Like there, There's no way I can do it. There's no way I can handle myself in that situation. Again, Trevor Sikama, what are you working on right now, man? Where can the folks find you? Man, just working every day, grinding, trying to get as much content out as we possibly can for you guys before draft weekend. We've got all sorts of you know, prospect write-ups, live mock drafts that we're doing. We're giving you day-to-day analysis on what we think is going to happen, not just in round one, but round two and round three. If you guys haven't been over to thedraftnetwork.com, man, if you hear a name that you don't quite recognize, that you go, okay, this guy might be good for our team, you can go check out a full trait-by-trait breakdown of them on our prospect rankings. And then if you love doing mock drafts, or if you've ever read a mock draft, heck, have you ever even read one of my mock drafts? And you go, I could mock better than that guy. <laughs> Head over to our mock draft machine, do it yourself. Uh, we, we always love seeing brand new mock drafts. It's a fun way for draft fans to really experience and get into the season with their team's focus. And so that's what we got going on, getting ready for draft weekend. I'm very excited for it, man. It's the best draft content out there. My favorite thing is doing those mock drafts. It gives you an idea of where the pockets of talent kind of fall and allows you to kind of make your, if this, then that tree, as I call it in the draft. So once again, Trevor, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate your time today. And it's always three sides minimum, right? It is always three sides minimum. (laughs) Appreciate you having me on, Travis. Take care, Trey. And away he goes, and that's going to be our time on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast. Plenty of good stuff for you today on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. In the meantime, you all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. You can follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible Podcast. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.